Hello everyone, it's June 13th, 2023. This week we're looking at Russia's Luna 25 mission, also known as Luna Globe, and it's been delayed till August. This isn't its first delay, but it just may be the last. Russia hasn't been to the moon since it was the USSR, but let's not delay the show, and lift off! Hey, we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 413 of the Orbital Mahins Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Dennis. Ben is uh, doing uh, Udvar Hazi. Yeah, Udvar Hazi outside Maybe. of DC uh, round two. <laughs> yeah. Which uh, is pretty awesome. Um, but we don't know if he's there or on his way back or <laughs> so ursa major right this is a company that you wanted to just mention maybe briefly at the top of the show right <laughs> oh sure with respect to their hiring and firing practices i guess or more specifically layoffs i i suppose is the issue yeah this was this was uh yeah this was a big you know shame evidently on friday you know just a few days ago they reported that 27 percent of the company's 250 employee workforce was laid off which is kind of what yeah before the show i mentioned to you right that i have thoughts on this and my thoughts are just simply this i have no ability i guess i just don't have any business sense (laughs) is what i want to say because all i hear about is ursa major winning awards right these are these are engine rocket engine manufacturing company right they win awards they get contracts with what phantom space is going to use their engines and somebody else even more recently announced they were going to be buying a ton of their engines and things in the news sound like they're going well and then suddenly it's like yeah we got to lay off almost you know more than a quarter of our workforce it's like I don't know. I can't make heads or tails of it. And maybe that's why I'm not in business. <laughs> to be honest, I have no better sense of it either myself, but it does seem a bit odd, right? Mm. So who knows how those things work. Um, that's unfortunate though. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, they've been around since 2015, but I'm guessing they spent their first you know, handful of years just kind of ramping up because really, I feel like they were getting in the news and, and contracts really in just the last year or two. I feel like I've, I've only heard of them over the past couple of years. Mm. And, you know, I follow this pretty closely, but it's not a name that I, that pops up, you know, that pops into my mind. But over the past several years, it definitely has been. Mm. And now a bunch of layoffs. So, yeah. but I mean, maybe it's just a sign of things that are going on like economically in general, perhaps. Yeah, right. I mean, I guess we did have the... Uh the kind of SPAC bubble burst last year, the year before. I can't keep track. And a SPAC bubble. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's definitely. Uh, uh, it seems like a very volatile industry for newcomers, and so more more economic or more business woes for a company. Because I think I also saw that uh, Virgin. I mean, not that like we already knew Virgin Orbit was toast, but like. I saw a news story in the last like day or two that like it was official, like 100%, you know, closed down and shut down and doesn't exist anymore sort of news story. But yeah, hopefully it's just a yeah, reorganization and, you know, I'm sure those people will be able to they're, – they're, they're, they're good, sharp and clever propulsion engineers and just maybe, you know, other types of engineers and they'll be able to land on their feet. But uh, hopefully it's just a reorganization thing and the company will still be cooking because uh, it sounds like – yeah, like other players are counting on their engines. <laughs> so that would be pretty frustrating. Luna 25 slash Luna Globe has been delayed. Uh, now, I don't know if I said that right. All right. Globe, glob. I'm sure it means something in Russian, probably globe. I think, yeah, I think it is pronounced globe as well. So you nailed it. So I guess delays are not surprising given the current state of affairs within Russia, but uh, Mm. do you have any more insight into exactly what's going on? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Really, this is just the most recent delay of what has been over a decade of delays. And uh, this, yeah, this mission has kind of been, 
you could spend an hour kind of detailing every single delay and for and why since like uh, since the nineties actually uh, is is when that it started. But in any event, yeah, this just the most recent delay, but still, it's kind of like uh, you ever seen those plots of the uh, scheduled launch date over time? Like they would do this for Hubble and for JWST, and it's got that kind of shark tooth looking kind of yeah, pattern. Yeah. And so uh, this though is ramping closer and closer to, uh, I guess, the one to one line where <laughs> it will launch in the present, and so uh, hopefully later this year. So um, I guess uh, just to talk a little bit about what the mission is, because I think it's pretty exciting because uh, you know it's another lunar mission and one coming from russia and so uh like i said it, it, the idea for it came, goes all the way back to the 1990s but really it was in the 2000s and in particular uh in 2011 uh shortly after the phobos grunt mission uh totally you know failed on launch and just uh you know went up and then splashed right back down again i believe that they kind of were like all right well let's let's actually get luna 25 going again because this is going to be assuming that it launches and makes it to the moon uh this will be the first russian mission to the moon Period, actually, because <laughs> they're, the last time the Russians launched something to the moon, it was the Soviet Union back in 1976. And so this has kind of been a long time coming. But I, I do love that they stuck with the numbering scheme, too, because even though it is called – the mission is sometimes called Luna Globe, like you said, it's also Luna 25. And so Luna 24 was, back, was a sample return back in 1976, which is – Long, long time ago. But ultimately, the, the, the mission profiles that they're targeting, the lunar south pole, like seemingly everybody is nowadays. And uh, they're going to launch it on a Soyuz 21B from Vostochny. Um, and, you know, they launch it into a 180 by 180 kilometer parking orbit around the Earth. And then the uh, frigate upper stage does its thing and gives it a little boost. And uh, I just want to take the, this, this opportunity to point out how cool – Looking the frigate upper stages, I just always love uh, its <laughs> style. Right? It just it's just a bunch of spherical tanks with a couple little engines yeah. underneath it. <laughs> yeah, originally they were going to have to do a few of these frigate burns to basically push it into higher, uh, more eccentric orbits before it would finally then uh, break free of the Earth's gravity and head towards the moon. But um, it turns out that this lunar lander is only a lunar lander now and. Luna Globe originally had an orbiter that was going to be co-manifested and launched with it. And because they split off the orbiter because it was suffering its own delays, it turns out that it's just going to be uh, – or they don't – they just need a single frigate burn now because uh, it's much less payload mass, I guess. You know, you're, you're losing basically one spacecraft, so you almost cut it in half. So then, you know, it's going to travel to the moon, do a couple of trajectory corrections uh, on the way, and then get into a uh, initial lunar orbit uh, of 100 by 100 kilometers. And then after a couple days uh, orbiting around the moon, it's going to get into a pre-landing orbit, which is pretty wild. It's uh, a 100 by – it's going to drop the, uh, the paraloon uh, down to 18 or even 12 kilometers depending on the reporting. And so that's, you know, that's getting pretty close while you're still, you know, in orbit. But uh, but then, yeah, from there, it, it'll, you know, basically transition to uh, its landing or posadka stage, uh, which I guess is just Russian for landing. And yeah, there's there's a crater, uh, Bogoslavsky crater. 
And so that's kind of their primary uh, site. But if they miss it because there's some mishap or issue on the way, there's another uh, Manzinus crater that they can also land near uh, that's at a different latitude. But that's kind of the, the profile. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fairly normal looking spacecraft. It's got some, you know, spherical tanks on the bottom of it and then a normal looking boxy spacecraft uh, bus sitting on top. And so um, not really anything that kind of jumps out at you. And so, yeah, that's the idea. <laughs> but the issue is that there's these delays. And so uh, some of them go all the way back to uh, – so so like I said, in 2011 is when they first uh, started to kind of really take this seriously after Phobos Grunt failed uh, to, to – uh, make it to that was going to be going to Mars, uh, particularly. But uh, the uh, uh, NPO Lavochkin is the uh, the the company that is building the spacecraft itself, and uh, they had a newish head in uh, uh, who would join the company, I guess, in 2000 or took over the head of the company in 2010. And he wanted a, a next gen, you know, latest and greatest uh, flight control computer, and he wanted it in three years. For you know the spacecraft because NPO Lavochkin, I mean you know basically they they made these other Lunas back in the seventies and you know sixties those spacecraft were built by them they built the the Venera spacecraft they built the Mars spacecraft they built a lot of you know Russian and Soviet uh, uh, spacecraft just provide a little context so anyway yeah this 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 guy you know takes over and says I want a brand new latest and greatest flight control computer. And it wants it in three years. And so, you know, he's going to contract it out to these experts in Moscow. And they were like, yeah, we can do it for you, but it's going to take a lot more than three years. And so at that point, though, they made the unfortunate, fateful decision that, no, nah, fine, we'll just build it in-house instead. And so sure enough, it's now 13 years later. <laughs> and uh, yeah, huge delays just getting this uh computer uh, going. And so that that didn't help. That's not the sole source of the delays, but that's definitely one of them. Finally, after, you know, they 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 had it set to uh 2020. And then from 2020, they talked about delays to 2021, and then 2021 they talked about delays to 2022, and then last year, 2022, they talked about delays to July 13th. And it seemed like that was Finally, kind of rounding the corner, and now we can, you know, it's 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 a more concrete launch date rather than you know just saying you know quarter two or you know the second half of whatever year. They had a concrete you know date and everything, and that is what the most recent news is that it's been pushed back to August. And I guess it just sounds like they just are not ready. There wasn't actually that much talk like there's one specific thing that resulted in the delay. It's just that they are not prepared for it. And so uh, I don't know if, you know, I mean, obviously there's a lot of stuff going on with Russia. And in fact, the invasion of Ukraine uh, also plays a part of the story a little bit too, because uh, ESA was going to fly a navigation camera uh, on this mission, but they pulled out after uh, after Russia invaded Ukraine last year. And um, <laughs> and that was actually not the only uh, European instrument uh, to fall victim uh, of these delays because Sweden was actually going to fly an instrument of their own even earlier. But uh, because of the delays, uh, China reached out to them and were like, hey, you know, we can put your instrument on uh, our Chang'e 4 lander. That's going to the moon. <laughs> you want to do that instead? And then Sweden, Sweden <laughs> was just kind of like, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. Sorry, Russia. You know, and that was that was a successful mission, Chang'e 4. You know, it, it made it there. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know, I, you know, I didn't 
go too deep into what this uh, this uh, Swedish instrument was, but you know everything was fine. I'm sure it took some good data because yeah, Chang'e four uh, landed in uh, December of 2018. Uh, to give a little context, so yeah, so it's uh, that July 13th has been uh, pushed back. And uh, they pushed it to uh, August of this year. So it's not like, yeah, you're just kicking the can down the road to another calendar year. So it's it's only, you know, a one-month-ish delay. And in the meantime, they're, you know, com- they said in the Space.com article that they're completing simulations of the landing, which, right, is a very uh, important part of the mission. And in fact, they had uh, – done some things for the spacecraft to make sure that it can um, not be fooled by shadows because there's going to be right, a lot more shadows at uh, very high uh, latitudes as you approach the south pole of the moon. And so uh, we saw how the uh, Hakuto R lander from JAXA recently got or well, failed to land because of a uh, it wasn't so much a shadow but a cliff that it wasn't <laughs> expecting, mm. which is, you know, unfortunate. And so, yeah, all this to say that landing on the moon is challenging. We've seen so many missions fail lately, and by lately, I mean the last few years. And so, uh, you know, hopefully this one will work out, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see and see if it actually does, in fact, launch uh, in August in just a couple months as of this recording. Well, so now you got me thinking about how mm. it's landing system works um so shadows can be a problem because i don't think on for example the hakuto r shadows would have made any difference right yeah i don't think so i'm trying to remember now because it had like an altimeter exactly yeah so 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 that's the thing so from what i've read my understanding is that it's kind of like that that it's the whole uh kalman filtering thing that ben had talked about and so they initially in the earlier parts of the landing phase they're using like star trackers and imus and then they switch to uh, – I'm sure they have an altimeter on board, but I think they also have like cameras um, that are used for navigating. And so I don't know if that's just uh, hazard avoidance only or as part of the figuring out where you are. Um, I know they also use some Doppler uh, measurements as well to kind of figure out – You know, that's the, how you get your um, vertical uh, velocity. And so uh, my guess is that uh, the shadows are an issue for the the navigation cameras um, during the final entry. So that maybe, you know, even if you know how far above the surface you are and how what your speed is and that's all good, it's not good if you land on a jagged rock, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. true. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, that's, that, that's a good point. It's it's yeah. That's not the that's not the whole story. Uh, that these shadows are mm-hmm. you know the the make or break point. But that was just one thing that I uh, I remembered uh, encountering and thought that that was interesting. It also <laughs> uh, I I I've said the word context a few times so far, and I'll say it again. <laughs> Why? What? What's the purpose of this mission? Right? I didn't even actually say what it's supposed to do. Right? Is it a sample return? Is it you know what is it doing? And basically, it's got nine uh, instruments on it. Uh, a total of uh, 66 pounds or 30 kilograms worth of you know scientific payload. And the idea is to analyze the dust and plasma environment at the lunar surface. And the reason why they want to do that and do it specifically at the south – near the south lunar pole is to support eventual crewed missions as part of the International Lunar Research Station, which I know we've talked about a few times, I think, in like Shorts and Sweets, which is the uh, Chinese and Russian uh, – 
I guess, competitor uh, to uh, Ar the Artemis program, establishing a, uh, a crude uh, presence at the Lunar South Pole that is not Artemis. And so that's the idea for what they want to do. And so the race, you know, we're, we're, we're what we call the new, yeah, our, our newish space race to get humans uh, yeah. back there. And so this is uh, what's happening in parallel to Artemis. Back to the moon and apparently to stay this time is the narrative. <laughs> so we'll see who gets there first. Yeah. Yep. So let's move right along to short and sweet. We have two of those this week. And Dennis, what's the first? First up, Firefly and York both make acquisitions. Firefly Aerospace has acquired satellite rideshare provider Spaceflight Inc. as part of Firefly's goal to offer end-to-end -end space transportation services. While the details of the deal had not been disclosed, Firefly plans to retain Spaceflight's Bellevue, Washington payload processing facility and honor its existing rideshare contracts. Meanwhile, satellite provider York Space Systems has acquired Emergent Space Technologies, a small company that develops satellite flight software and has recently won a number of contracts from the U.S. Space Force's Space Development Agency, or SDA. The acquisition gives York access to Emergent's proprietary flight and ground software products, which aligns with the former's goal of building out next-gen constellations. Next up, Egypt to build Space Monitoring Station. Egypt is collaborating with China in building the world's second largest global monitoring station for tracking satellites and space debris. The station the station's dome will host two telescopes, with the first being received from China within the next month and a half and the second constructed later this summer, after which trial operations can begin. The two telescopes have a diameter of 1.2 and 0.7 meters respectively. China will also send a delegation of experts to train Egyptian engineers and technicians for using this new facility. That's interesting. I don't know anything about it. It's such this. a random story. I was kind of like, is it really, you know, of the caliber for our show, but I'm like, I mean, Egypt is building the second biggest satellite and space debris tracking station, which is pretty cool. All right. So moving right along to this week in spaceflight history, uh, we have five winners uh, who all get bonus points. So we have Uncle Willie and we have Astro, Psykyle, Henry, and the Greek. Congratulations. Uh, the clue was, I guess, pretty simple. Um, ben, I remember he said he really liked it. Mm. I, th I thought it was okay. I came up with it, but I wasn't super satisfied, but whatever. Uh, the clue <laughs> was a six-sided system. And the reason why that was a clue is because uh, this event was the 15th of June, 1971, and it was the launch of KH9, uh, which is also known as Hexagon. Um, so this is a relatively recently, de or maybe not relatively, I think it's back in the 90s. This is a declassified reconnaissance satellite. And... Uh, the codename was Hexagon. One of the other codenames apparently was Big Bird. So that kind of got thrown around. So kind of like Corona. We've talked a lot about that. I don't know how much we've talked about this one. Maybe not much at all, but it's similar in some ways. It's sort of like a Corona 2.0 oh. updated version. Very cool satellite. Yeah, so there were 19 successful missions out of a total of 20, and this lasted from, again, 1971 um, up through 1986. Uh, but the 20th and the last mission, that actually blew up on the pad, and that was due to the Titan 34D's solid rocket booster rupturing, and so the whole thing exploded. I don't know if that's why they ended the program, but that's, you know, <laughs> that's when they ended the program. <laughs> so I guess just a quick comparison to Corona, since I know, again, we've talked about that a lot. The Corona reconnaissance 
reconnaissance satellite that was capable of a six foot resolutions, resolutions on objects down to six feet in size. This one hexagon is capable of two to three feet. Uh, it really started off at three foot and then they got it down to two. Ah. So quite a bit better than Corona, um, you know, which is, which makes sense. This is you know, about like a decade or so later. According to one of the engineers who worked on this, it might be the most complex satellite ever built. And I think by that, what he meant was it's the most mechanically complex because there's a lot of moving parts ah. and he's probably right. Uh, we'll talk about some of those parts. This is a very, I mean, this is, you know, kind of like a giant camera. And if you think about old fashioned cameras and how many moving parts those had, it's kind of like that, but on a much larger scale. So uh, a lot of little mechanisms. So just quickly as to why they wanted to develop this particular program. Um, this was post-World War II. Um, I guess this isn't too surprising, but there was, you know, this intelligence gap. So we needed information about what was going on in the rest of the world, specifically the Soviet Union. And uh, specifically, they needed information on weapons development, as well as the industrial potential of the Soviet Union, plus the agricultural capability. And that's something that you know, we don't always think about because I always think about taking photos of like missile silos and things like that. Uh -huh. But also you need to know about what's going on agriculturally and also for what they call strategic map creation. And I guess just, you know, maps, just getting a better idea of as far as like roads and the layout of the land uh, for strategic purposes, whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> this vehicle was operated from the, at the time, the Sunnyvale Air Force Station in uh, California in the heart of Silicon Valley. It is now called Onizuka, um, which is after one of the astronauts on the Challenger. So uh, the name has since been changed. And uh, apparently there's a big giant building called the Cube, I think they call it, uh. um, kind of like their version of the VAB. And that's where they used to actually build dirigibles, I believe. So that's kind of an interesting little fact. Wow. You, you, you said that the second I coincidentally pulled up a picture of, yeah, the, the blue cube. It yeah, yeah. definitely looks like a cube, yeah. <laughs> yeah, something that you would build something very big in. Mm. So there were over a thousand people who actually worked in support of just the camera system on uh, this thing. So it was a yeah, very complex camera system. So basically this was, you know, kept top secret. And I think that is the actual correct usage of the term. It was top secret. And so they had like a security system within a security system. I don't know exactly what that means, but basically it means that, you know, you don't talk about this. So obviously there was no public awareness of this particular satellite system until it was declassified, although there were some rumors um, yeah. because that can never be stopped. But uh, yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, just to mention really briefly about the dimensions of the uh, satellite uh, the or the space vehicle, the giant camera in space, um, it is 60 feet long, so it's pretty big. It was 13.6 metric tons, and it had two solar power wings in the rear of the vehicle, and then forward of that is the rest of the cameras in the capsules, which would actually return the film that was taken, but we'll talk about that in a second. I guess I'm kind of getting out of <laughs> getting out of order. So in the very front of the vehicle, however, there was a mapping camera. And so this is, you know, going back to what we were saying about mapping. Um, this is basically just to get a map of the land. This is not to do any kind of surveillance on, you know, specific things at high resolution. So they had the one mapping camera. That was probably the simplest of them all because uh, the two main cameras, which kind of worked in tandem with one another, there were these two big stereoscopic cameras. Ah. So I think we talked about this before with, I don't know if Corona worked the same way, but I know that you had mentioned, I think you had mentioned, Dennis, at some point um, not too long ago, and I don't remember what satellite system this was, but mm. you basically are in a polar orbit. You're doing a ground track. And so you have um, these two cameras with like one that's tilted like 10 degrees forward and one that's tilted 10 degrees aft. And then that way you can get a stereo angle of the ground because you're looking at it from two points of view as you pass over. Mm. I don't remember what we were talking about, and it might have just been Corona. I 
cannot for the life of me remember now. <laughs> yeah, I only have a vague recollection of that. I, I, I know, yeah. yeah. I remember us saying something like that, but yeah, don't remember the, con- the details. So there were four film canisters along the forward ventral side of the vehicle. So unlike Corona, which I believe just had one, if I'm not mistaken, pretty sure that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, this one had four. So it was kind of the same concept, but like, why not do multiple canisters? These canisters had like this gold covering, which was actually for thermal protection. Uh, they were... Um, I didn't get the dimensions, but they were probably about a couple feet in diameter, so, you know, not huge. And the film was spooled through all of them continuously. It would feed to the one that was the furthest forward, and then once that one was full, it would just, you know, clip it off, and then it would go to the next one behind that. So it just kind of, you know, filled these canisters up in sequence and then would release them. So the cameras could actually rotate 60 degrees left and right for a 120-degree swath. Each degree of rotation was one inch of film, and this is actually just like a quote that I lifted from a very good talk, which was given by, again, one of the chief engineers on this thing. And this was given at the AIAA last year, which was a Zoom call, because I don't know if they were doing them in person. Yeah, I think this one was just specifically uh, a remote call for everyone. Okay. Yeah, there, there was no in-person component. But so this is something that the engineer had mentioned, and I'm not sure what he meant by this, but this kind of got me thinking about how this system worked. So I think what he meant was uh, with each degree of rotation was one inch of film. I think that means that where the image is, you know, imprinted on the film is offset by about one inch because the camera would rotate, but the film would more or less obviously have to maintain its length. Um, so it's kind of being, I, I don't know enough camera terminology here, but it's mm. its um, that which deposits the image on the film kind of shifts a little bit. And so you have these two reels of film that are supposed to, you know, like give you sort of like a three-dimensional image, but they have to be, you have to be looking at the same two images side by side. And so I'm guessing that they were not aligned, if that makes sense. Or in other words, the time stamp, which I haven't talked about yet, but you have to basically know when you know, each image was captured so that you know exactly where each image was captured. And I'll talk about how they did that in a second. But um, yeah, there was this very interesting point about there being some alignment issues due to the rotation of the cameras to get that large swath underneath as you pass overhead. Um, And I couldn't quite understand what he was saying. Plus, it was a little bit, it was a Zoom call and some stuff kind of cut out for a second. And uh, (laughs) maybe something was missed. I'm not sure. But um, one of the big challenges for this camera system, since it was highly sensitive, was uh, the focus and alignment challenge due to the launch vibrations as well as the orbital thermal changes so you're on orbit and you're having to launch to orbit and so you have a lot of shocks and vibrations uh, plus there's a lot of thermal expansion and contraction going on yeah. since you're you know going from orbital day and night and all that so in order to remedy this they used a metal called invar i'm not familiar with this but it's about 35 percent nickel and it was used as a truss and metering rod between the lenses and the primary mirror. So basically, kind of like a telescope, you have like lenses, you have a mirror, and you have like this long tube, and that length has to be maintained. But how do you do that when things are constantly expanding and contracting? So you have this invar, which can basically maintain a certain length, and it has the same thermal expansion properties as the lenses. So it kind of moves in tandem with them, and it has this, you know, little metering rod, which I think was just used to make fine adjustments. But yeah, invar, I'm not familiar with that particular Metal, but apparently it doesn't move around a lot. Yeah, that's that's new. That's new for me too. But yeah, the, the Wikipedia article has a figure showing how the um, the coefficient of thermal expansion changes as you increase the percentage of nickel in the alloy, and it I guess you get it like thirty 
35, 36% or so nickel. And then it just, it, it's a very, very, very low minimum. Yeah. Compared to something like aluminum, which has very high thermal expansion. So you can't use aluminum. Um, it is light, but it just would not be good for this particular purpose. And then of course, another issue with these cameras was also blur. And we talked about this before with, I think, Corona. You have to keep in mind that you're moving above the earth. The earth is moving below you. The camera has to move and there's high speed film, which is moving through the camera. So a lot of things are in motion here and you have to get really good focus and you don't want blur. Uh. So that's very difficult to do. Um, so these were some of the big challenges. The film stock itself was 6.6 .6 inches wide and 0.00. .00 zero five inches thick which is about one two thousandths of an inch so wow. very thin film and so this film very thin very very sensitive you cannot expose it to the vacuum of space uh, all kinds of things go wrong so there were actually these two spheres on the bottom of the spacecraft which housed highly compressed nitrogen something like 3,000 psi and then that was used to basically flood the film stock with about 1.5 psi of the nitrogen gas and that's just to maintain the moisture and the emulsion of the film and so the whole path of the film through this giant satellite, it was always contained within the nitrogen. So at no point was the film just, you know, exposed to the vacuum of space because mm. you couldn't do that. So you have this very intricate mechanical process where it's moving past all these little rollers and going in and out of these little mechanisms. But but the whole thing is kept within this 1.5 PSI of nitrogen, which is not a lot, but I guess it's more than enough to, you know, maintain the moisture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to see more and more what you meant by uh, the most complicated or complex satellite ever launched um, in terms of me yeah. mechanical complexity. This is incredible. And I was flabbergasted by being uh, one, what'd you say, 20 thousandths of an inch? One two thousandths. One two thousandths of an inch. Well, still impressive because I, I converted that, that's 0 0.0005 inches is 13 microns. Yeah. That's insane. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. You'll see in a second why perhaps that actually sounds about right. So hmm. so the film was fed through hundreds of these little beryllium rollers. And I, and I don't know enough about the mechanics of how uh, film works in general or if this is something that pertains to film. But why that needed to be done, I'm not entirely sure. Um, because if you look and I – again, like I highly recommend just to watch the video. There's all kinds of uh, little slides given. I tried to find if there was a place where I could download them, but I didn't look too hard. Mm. Um, but of course, you can just watch the video for free and you know see all the slides that way. But um, it's a very complex mechanism where it's rolling kind of like when you watch like movies where you see like newspaper being fed through the giant thing in the newspaper manufacturing mm – -hmm factory or whatever the place where they print newspapers it's kind of like that and i'm like why do you need to roll it and then have it you know like double back and then rolling you know like mm -hmm. it's just hundreds of feet are not in the spool at any given moment it looks like so i don't know why that is but um it's passing through all these little rollers and it's kind of going in every which direction uh before it finally gets to the film canister where it's actually stored yeah so getting back to why the film needs to be so thin so at perigee you have a different speed than when like you're orbiting at your apogee and so the speed is going to determine how quickly the ground passes underneath the camera so you have to actually vary the camera speed so at perigee the film speed was actually moving at 200 inches per second and then at the apogee at about like 70 inches per second so you have 200 inches per second being fed through this camera uh, at any one time
time that it's, you know, actually like taking images. So that's really fast. And so at that speed, it would seem to me that it would just run out of film very quickly. But actually, it would take about a month and a half before a canister needed to be ejected. And the whole uh, film reel, which was about 2,000 pounds, that would take about like six months or so. And each roll of film weighed 2,000 pounds, uh, which to me is just insane. Like, again, this is six inches wide and it's just one two thousandths of an inch thick. So that is incredible. But yeah, crazy fast camera. So yeah, like I said, the film was stored in the forwardmost canister first. It was ejected once it was full. And then the next bucket in line would actually cinch the film. And then a little guillotine uh, is what actually separated the film from the canister forward of that one. That is something that I believe is how, not as complex, but that is how Corona worked. Um, Again, I think Corona just needed to do this once, um, but it was the same concept because you have to get the film back to earth and so you have to cut the film the uh bucket would eject approximately one to every one and a half months so like i said if there's four of these you're looking at about i guess five or six months or so when the film was ejected it was it was actually spun up for spin stabilization it had this little rocket on the back side uh and uh, that would spin it up it was a very simple mechanism you could basically determine when you ejected it but beyond that not much more like this isn't a guided re-entry the canister would come back in. Uh, parachutes would open at about 50,000 feet. The top of the parachute had this little cable reinforced dome section. So basically, it's like a parachute on top of a parachute. And it had this little circular ring that kind of like ran around it. And this is what the C-130 planes would actually use to scoop the thing up. And I don't remember if Chrono worked the same way. I haven't seen parachutes with this particular feature before, not that I can recall. But if you imagine a traditional parachute, but just with a big dome kind of like a little nipple sticking out the top of it (laughs) Um, and that is like reinforced with steel then the plane can kind of you know swoop overhead and grab onto the metal that is like lining that little white dome piece and this was done with five c-130s apparently so they would send five of them out they would actually approach in order so the first one would make a pass and if it missed the second one would try and capture and then the third fourth and fifth and then if that didn't work and it landed in the ocean they had a helicopter they would come by and pick it up so you had multiple chances to grab this thing uh and they were all successful except for one where on the third bucket of this first mission uh the parachute did not deploy so it hit the ocean at a ungodly fast speed, plunged <laughs> to a depth of about 16,000 feet, and it just stayed down there because obviously this is much heavier than water, so it just sunk. <laughs> but apparently the information, they were very adamant about recovering it. So like over a period of about nine months, the Trieste, which is a famous deep submersible vehicle, um, was actually outfitted with a special grapple uh, designed by Perkin Elmer, which was one of the contractors that was involved in you know the design of this vehicle. And uh, they were able to find the canister, miraculously enough. They were able to retrieve it. Um, however, the film had disintegrated, so I guess it wasn't airtight Mm. um and you know some water got in there which is not surprising considering it impacted the ocean at from what i read probably about like 100 g's or so i mean this thing slammed into the ocean because it's heavy and it's got you know nothing slowing it down sure some of the new technologies developed uh optical encoders and i'm not sure quite i didn't get into the details about what that was uh i think ben knows more about that I, i i'm not too familiar with it um i think that's separate from the light pipes which i'll mention in just a second but before i mention that there was also a brushless dc motor so obviously this thing had motors because the cameras had to rotate so you had motors that allowed that but you don't want steel brush 
brush causing friction because that can create electromagnetic interference and it creates little dust particles, which can be a real problem when you're trying to take photographs. So they actually developed a brushless DC motors. I don't know if that was the first instance of that being done, but uh, that was considered a big new technology. There were also light pipes, and this is what was actually used to deposit the data on the edge of the film. And this is what told you the date, the latitude, the longitude, because obviously, like if you don't have that, you don't know what you're looking at. And that is a big deal because uh, you're looking at like several miles worth of film stock. So that's very, very important. There were these little fiber optic wires that would basically encode on the edge of the film uh, that information in terms of the date and latitude, longitude, and all that. And then the mechanism for linear and rotational motion. So this has to do with the cameras themselves. Again, the cameras have to move side to side and they have to maybe move front and back a little bit too. But basically there's a complex mechanism which is too hard to describe. But again, you're moving this film through more rollers, um, a couple dozen more, uh, just to get it to move along with the camera in such a way that you don't scratch the film. So one cool feature um, was they didn't use traditional rollers, but they actually had this these little bars that had holes in them through which nitrogen would come out and it would create a little cushion of air and then the film would actually spool around that. That was because you needed to allow the film to move like up and down the roller, not across the roller, but up and down, like it kind of had to slide. And so that's hard to do without scratching it. So they just said, well, it just can't have contact with any surface. So they created this little air hockey roller thing. Mm. Um, but yeah, and so just quickly, as I mentioned at the top, this was launched aboard a Titan 3D, and specifically it was a modified version of one. It was the Titan 34D, and this was the only launch vehicle for the whole thing, and it was always launched from Vandenberg. Uh, so just one rocket, one launch site. They thought briefly about launching Hexagon in the shuttle, and the reason for this was that you could conceal when it was being launched much better if you could release it from a space shuttle as opposed to just launching it on this big rocket. So that's the Hexagon. I think I kept it as brief as possible. Well, Thank you. So next week will be Ben's uh, event. And so since he's not here, I will, I guess, uh, pass it on to you. So uh, next week is the 20th to the 26th of June. And do you have a clue for us on Ben's behalf? Next week in 1971, same year as uh, this one, <laughs> Tunguska 2.0. Yeah, so we are really just, yeah, moving forward in 1971 in a parallel track. Yeah. And so... If we can, maybe the clue after that will also be 1971. That would be cool. That would be something. So if you think uh, you uh, know what the what event that clue is referencing, you can shoot us an email or leave a clue on our Discord in the This Week SF channel. And good luck. Good luck. So... Moving on to upcoming spaceflight events then, uh, six events, some launches, some spacewalks, some flybys, <laughs> <laughs> and thank you to Launch Library 2, where we start our research each week. And so uh, what is the first event, Dennis? Well, the first one is a uh, Long March 2D taking a whole bunch of stuff to orbit. And so this is on Thursday, June 15th, um, or Wednesday, June 14th, depending on which time zone you live in. But uh, yeah, this uh, Long March 2D is going to be taking 41 uh, GLIN-1 uh, commercial uh, EO satellites um, to building up this uh, constellation that they have uh, there. And so it's going to be launching to Sun Synchronous. And again, that's Thursday, June 15th, with a window from 0523 to 0605 
UTC, uh, launching out of Taiwan in uh, China. After that, on the same day, uh, we have US Spacewalk 88 to announce to install uh, another IROSA. We mentioned this last week, so we're just mentioning it again. It is occurring during uh, this next week. The coverage begins at 7.45 in the morning Eastern time. Uh, the actual spacewalk is scheduled to begin at approximately 9.20. And so, yeah, this is, um, you know, the installation of another IROSA. I think I think one was just done, what, like a couple weeks ago, and this is the second one. I think it might have actually been last week. And then next up, we have our second launch of the week, and this one's an old friend we haven't seen in a while, an Ariane 5 uh, in the ECA Plus uh, mode, I guess. And it's going to be taking a, uh, a pair of payloads, uh, the Syracuse 4B, which is a French military commsat, and the uh, Heinrich Hertz or H2 sat, which is a, uh, a small geostationary uh, communication uh, satellite. And so uh, putting smaller things in geo is like a, a new trend that's happening. That's pretty cool. I like it a lot. And so, uh, yeah, so this as you could tell, right? Yeah, it's going to Geo. The launch is on Friday, June 16th, with a window from 2126 to 2301 UTC, launching as Ariane 5s always do out of Kourou in French Guiana. And then after that, we have a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Satria 1. So this is <laughs> an Indonesian geostationary communication satellite. Uh, so your launch time for that is at 2154 UTC on the 19th. And it's launching from Slick 40, where they launch a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> They've launched a lot of uh, Starlinks, and they can, you know, still turn around and do some other customers, and then go back to Starlinks. They're just really using that pad, mm. doing a good job. It is their launch cadence is just remarkable. Yeah, like, you really can't say enough about it. And then on June twentieth, we have a, a planetary. Uh, event. So not really something you can watch, but the Bepi Colombo mission, if you uh, recall, is still uh, working its way to its final uh, uh, orbital insertion into Mercury. But on June 20th, it's going to be doing its third flyby of the innermost planet of our solar system. And so this is the third of six that are ultimately planned before it reaches uh, its final orbit in uh, December of 2025. But yeah, uh, hopefully there'll be some cool pictures or something that'll come out of it. And then after that, we have the second to last launch of the Delta IV Heavy. So that's coming up on the 21st of June, and that's launching Enroll 68 for the National Reconnaissance Office. Uh, so it's a classified payload. We don't know what it is. Uh, but yeah, so this is the second to last launch of a Delta IV Heavy. Uh, and there's one more coming up in the first quarter of next year for Enroll 70, then that'll be it. Wow. Uh, but this one, uh, the launch window for that is from 0700 UTC through 1145 UTC. So big, long launch window there. Uh, launching from Slick 37B at the Cape. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. So that's it. It is time to adieu with the show. And we would like to thank Ron Jinkies and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Ryan, Mike, Chris, a.k.a. Stig Garfield, Leon Running Man, Colin, The Greek, Astro, and Psykyle for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And you can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See ya.